it's amazing that mindset that you get into when you're really in the depth of it. You think you're above all of it, even though you're kind of waking up outside and everything is completely to shit. Your your thought process, well, my thought process still goes, well, imagine if I didn't have booze or imagine if I didn't have these drugs or if I didn't, that would be my problem. It would never be like, oh, maybe that's the problem because it just didn't seem like an option to get rid of them. Unfortunately, men's mental health issues are frequently ignored and men tend to neglect their mental health for years. So what is being done to help men's mental health and why is it still so stigmatised? These are the sorts of questions we should be asking ourselves all the time. But particularly this month, as Men's Mental Health Month sees mental health charities prioritise the conversation around men's mental health and help raise awareness of the struggles men can face. This month, I want to allow space for men to talk about their mental health and to normalise it by having them speak openly about their own challenges. The Hurt to Healing podcast is proud to partner with Shout, the UK's first free, confidential, 24-7 tech support service. So if you're struggling to cope and need mental health support, please text SHOUT, S-H-O-U-T, to 852 Today I'm speaking to chef and writer Ali Gill, the son of the well-known journalist A.A. Gill about his own battle with addiction. Ali has spoken openly about how the words of his late father helped him to overcome his own addiction to drink and drugs. He explains how he hit rock bottom before finding the strength he needed to become sober two years ago, with his father Adrian playing a crucial role in the breakthrough from beyond the grave. There were similarities between A.A. Gill's personal struggle and Ali's, which were reflected in his father's memoir, which he penned after giving up alcohol aged 29. It was when Ali was presented with his memoir at a rehabilitation centre near Edinburgh, which then instigated his own journey to sobriety. So we're going to talk about your struggle with alcohol, and I'd love to know about your childhood and whether you were an anxious child and an overthinker. Yeah, I think I was. It's funny, in addiction and in my sobriety, you hear a lot of maybe different things that what makes you an addict. And for me, one thing that how I know that I was born an addict is because the traits have always been there. For as long as I can remember, I was always on a completely different path. And I think I was, I, I never had a mentality of, oh, drugs and alcohol, I've got to be careful of that. It was much more there's something that makes me feel different. What is that? I've got to get my hands on that. And I think that's a a big show of how uncomfortable I was in my own skin as a child. You know, I was almost addicted before I had tried it. Did you have that feeling of always being an imposter and never quite feeling that your friends liked you or accepted you? Yeah, totally. I can't really remember my first drink or drug, but... I remember that it was different, I think, to everyone else around me. And even when I was probably around 12, 13, where I wasn't doing it every day, but it was certainly on my mind every day. And I couldn't understand why everyone didn't want to do it all the time. It, it still surprises me. I get it a lot when I see people just drink a glass of red wine with dinner and then they go home. And I, I just think, what? what? What is wrong with you? <laughs> You're dealing it on the way. You, <laughs> what's the plan? 
<laughs> no, and it's the same with food as well. I, I used to stand outside Pret at lunchtime and watch these girls go in who sort of were slim and buy a sandwich and a packet of crisps and just watch them eat it. And I would just be mesmerized mm. by the fact that you can give yourself permission to eat a carb at lunchtime and to buy a packet of crisps and to not then think, oh my God, I've got to go and run 20 miles around the park. Yeah. It's fascinating. So when was the first time that you started to drink and what was that feeling that you got from it? I can't really tell you. I can't really remember it. Like, like I say, it's it's more... I remember the more general feeling of it. Mm. Okay, okay, that works. And it, it completely, I would say my whole life gravitated around it from a very young age. That was what I could get satisfaction out of. That's what was fun. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't understand how other people could sit in libraries and do work. I had found something and I didn't understand, you know, like why everyone didn't want to do it all the time. That was where I got any satisfaction out of. So how was school? How did you manage? I know that you had a bit of a checkered school record. Mm, yeah, I didn't last long. <laughs> yeah, you know, I got expelled from a few schools and I kind of just was able to float through them all, not really grasping anything or really having any drive for anything. It's interesting though, I, I recently got diagnosed, I know you've talked a lot about ADHD. Mm. And I recently got diagnosed a couple of months ago and I've started new meds, which have been life changing. But, you know, you've got to go in with all your school records. And I found that very emotional because mainly why my mum had kept all these shit records was beyond me. But every page was just, he can't sit down. He's not focusing. He can't give me eye contact. He'll tell me, so, so I'll tell him something and he'll just forget it five minutes later. And the guy diagnosing me was actually quite taken back by it all, that no one had ever told me any of that stuff. So it never felt like an option, really, doing that work. It felt like it was a dead end. It was already in my head, that doesn't work for me, but I do have this, which is drinking drugs. That's very interesting. And the fact that no one picked up on it, as you say, is it's tragic in a way, but hopefully if it was happening in this day and age where there is slightly more awareness around it you would be picked out from the crowd I mean I just I do find ADHD is something that's just so underdiagnosed and it's a mad one, isn't it? it is and as we've spoken about and stopped my chances at Oxford completely yeah obviously yeah. I mean <laughs> you would have gone on to be a scholar I'm sure yeah <laughs> but but if it's channeled in the right way it can be extraordinary you know people with ADHD have the ability to hyper focus and they can achieve amazing things yes yeah, yeah totally and also it's in, on another level it largely explains why you relied on alcohol so heavily because often if it does go misdiagnosed you're looking for that dopamine hit mm. from something else well it's interesting the person who diagnosed me completely coincidentally was the same doctor that sent me to rehab no way and those were his two things addiction and adhd because there's quite a large correlation between them so yeah, that was funny seeing him again. And interesting that he didn't pick up on it at all the first time. Uh, there were more pressing matters the first time. Yeah, well, I'm sure, I'm sure. I mean, it was your health as yeah. well, which was so at risk. But I know that from doing the 12 steps for eating disorders, there's often that where girls with eating disorders are actually first of all diagnosed with drugs or alcohol dependency because... Yeah. And the eating is actually the underlying issue. Yeah, totally. I mean, yeah, my, my heart completely goes out. I, th I think it's incredibly tough, the eating one. 
It'd be like telling me you've got to have three drinks a day, mm. never any more or any less. You know, every bite must be a trigger. You get really creative. I mean, the same with my addictions on covering everything up or getting, you know, good with it. And I remember meeting someone who had a really bad eating disorder and she would eat things with certain meals like turmeric with breakfast, beetroot with lunch. So she was bulimic. So when she threw it up, she knew exactly what she was kind of like color coding all your files. Yeah. I just thought, wow, that's horrific, but kind of clever. Yeah. I mean, it's so systematic. And I think until you've been in that headspace, you don't quite realize the the magnitude of a condition like that and actually anything it's a it's all the covert stuff and all the sort of mental ritualization that goes alongside it and all the preparation and yeah i don't know whether with you yeah Mm. i mean it is and you know you have to be you have to plan everything within an inch of its life because presumably it got to a stage where you were having to hide a lot from you know even your closest friends yeah yeah absolutely you know that's really it's good when you see someone and you have a hunch that they might be an addict you're only seeing the tip of the iceberg every you know we get very good at lying very good at covering up and you believe it yourself i went into rehab as well with a lot of resentments of you know why why didn't anyone help me but you know how, how could anyone know i was lying to everybody and you know it took me 27 years to realize saying i'm not okay was even an option that was a huge breakthrough for me. For someone to ask me if I'm okay and me just to go, no, actually, I'm really not. Yeah, and I need help. Yeah. So school was was a struggle. School was a struggle, but um, I don't know if I was particularly sad about it all. Mm. <laughs> and did you have friends or were you kind of, was the drink your friend? Yeah, I had a bit of both. But, you know, I think you kind of camouflage at that age. There's something different going inside of my head but it's not showing so apparently, you know, if a teenager who's drinking a lot and doing drugs, it's just like, oh, well, that fits the category a bit. I mean, uh, the only thing I suppose is you surround yourself with more of you. Mm. Yeah, I don't, I don't look back and think of it as a particularly awful time. I think just maybe a bit lost. And was there any point that someone tried to intervene and say, Ali, I think you need some help? Yeah, a couple of times, but... Again, you know, it's you get good at turning that around. You get very good at lying. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it gets to a point, though, when I guess you're not meeting people's expectations and you're mm. not kind of moving through the loopholes, you know, people think you should be at a particular stage. Yes. And then once you start to flout the system, mm. then people sort of, it's like a red flag here, a red flag there, maybe things aren't okay. Yes, that's exactly right. I didn't even really know that I wasn't okay. I would have known that I was a drug addict and an alcoholic for many years, but I would never have put that label on it. Mm. You know, I needed, that's what I wanted, that's what I needed every day, and that's what I got to be my tunnel vision, was just have I got enough to get through the day. But I would never have said, oh no, I'm not an alcoholic, I'm not an alcoholic, I don't belong in those rooms, I know what those rooms Mm. are, I'm not part of that. It's amazing that mindset that you get into when you're really in the depth of it. You think you're above all of it, even though you're kind of waking up outside and everything is completely to shit. Your your thought process, well, my thought process still goes, well, imagine if I didn't have booze or imagine if I didn't have these drugs or if I didn't, that would be my problem. It would never be like, oh, maybe that's the problem. 
because it just didn't seem like an option to get rid of them. And presumably having a dad who also had a history of alcoholism and who was teetotal, mm. did that heighten your awareness to it at all? Eventually it did. Mm. When I got that sort of couple of weeks sober in rehab. But growing up, not really. I really wasn't aware of my surroundings that much. I didn't I feel so lucky to have such amazing parents, but I wasn't really around them that much. Mm, so I neither was, of them picked up on any yeah, issues. I could get up to my own things and, you know, I learned how to get up to my own naughtiness by myself and how to dress it in a way that everyone just sort of sidelined it. And, you know, I think people probably thought of me as, oh, yeah, that, you know, drunk Ali who, you know, likes to drink. Yeah. As opposed to... The alcoholic the alley. Mentally ill alley. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's it's very interesting. And I think people do, they assume, oh, well, it's quite normal in your teens and your 20s exactly. to kind of bin drink and to want to party and to... It's accepted in our culture to, unfortunately, get yeah. blindly drunk and just behave like a bit of an idiot and sort of then pick yourself up and then do it all over again the following yeah. night. It's just, it's when it... Well, as you said, what people don't recognise is when it becomes a mental illness and when it's such a crutch that you can't get through a day without it. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. And I'm interested in, you became a chef and did just, I mean, how was that? How was working in kitchens? I love being a chef. And, you know, it's, it was it was always a bit of shimmering light through my addiction of something that I love to do, working with my hands. But that was my only option, really, was kitchens you know kitchen jobs quite easy to get but very hard to climb mm. and the mental illness like ratio with chefs is just mad mm. and also like you're five times more likely to die of lung cancer as a chef why is that because they smoke because smoke, of stress smoke and probably what and everything drinking. you're inhaling yeah. fumes inside but mainly smoke i would have thought yeah no because <laughs> it's mad stress um but it's you know the, the, there are two angles of that which is First, just the stressfulness of the job, which is just mad. But then the other part is kitchens will take in people who can't do anything else. You know, I didn't have any qualifications. I didn't have, I, I had no chance of getting something like an office job or anything like that, or even going on to uni. So the kitchen was the place that would have me. And did that enable your drinking? Yeah, I mean, definitely. A lot of kitchens will sideline that. Getting drunk and high was always my first job, and that was a full-time job. <laughs> but it did get me in trouble, and it did get me kicked out of kitchens. And but I just didn't—I did, I didn't really care, I suppose. Or maybe I could convince myself that I didn't care. Yeah, and that's often it comes, doesn't it? That you can't—you do something that you just don't really give a shit about because, like you said, your primary focus and your primary concern is getting the drink. And as exactly. long as you've got that. And as long as you get that numbness and that high or that fix, then it's okay. That's like job the, the job, yeah, the job comes like way Nailed down it. the pile. <laughs> and that was another thing I always struggled to fathom as to how someone can prioritize their career so much and just like look at these people and be like, "Don't you have like other things that like you mm -hmm. know take sort of precedent?" It's, it's that extraordinary mindset, isn't it? It's just like you become the in your head, you're the normal yeah. and you kind of know maybe well I mean I definitely knew I had a problem probably earlier than you did but 
I yes yeah, still thought that I had it all sussed out like mm. I some I discovered the secret that could like help me manage my emotions and my pain sort of worked in in some kind of warped slightly sick way it's funny because it's, it's kind of like the ego and the pride which was such a big thing that also I had to tackle that I had no idea I, I had of course but I remember in rehab being handed extra homework on pride and try talking your way out of pride homework you can't do it it just sounds like you need it even more but I was just I was I didn't understand it because you know I had a lot of shame I was so ashamed of myself I didn't leave my house at all for a long time I would just stay inside and intoxicate myself because I was so ashamed I knew what I was but it's funny shame because it kind of goes hand in hand with ego and pride mm. even though they seem like opposites but you know it's kind of like why are you ashamed you know what people will see you as what people will think of you as and that's where the pride comes in as well. Yeah, it's very true. Like we want to come across as being these sorted mm. individuals, but yeah, exactly. it's all about to kind of massively crash down. And, and it does. It does. And that's kind of what has to happen, isn't it? Yeah. Really. It's the gift of desperation, you know. Mm. I do believe that. So what was the point when you started to acknowledge that it was a problem and that you probably needed help? I had tried, uh, I mean, I had gone completely mentally loopy at one point and I did try to stop I think I'd like I'd, I'd miss some really big events because I just got obviously I was still up or completely you know unreliable I'd done made a complete ass of myself in on many on the few occasions that I had gone out and I had this big moment where I made a pact to myself I was like I'm not gonna drink or do drugs for a week and I think I lasted about 45 minutes until I, I I managed to sort of, you know, talk my way into it of going, oh, well, it's fine. We won't do drugs then. I'm just going to have a glass of wine. That's fine. And then, you know, fast forward to dealers on the way, me on the couch, just honestly so confused. At how has this happened? How has this just happened again? I just said to myself, you know, I'm not going to do this. And there I was. I then also was quite physically ill throwing up while I, I was drinking more than usual. <laughs> and so I went to the doctors and I had um, alcoholic hepatitis in my liver. It's so funny how my how your mindset in that motion is. What, where I went to from that, from hearing that, was, well, what drugs can you give me for that? As opposed to <laughs> maybe I need to stop this. Everyone tries to manage it but you are managing the unmanageable. Yeah, and wanting to predict how everything's going to turn out when you just can't. Totally. And if you carry on doing what you're doing, you know what the end result is. Yeah. I mean... Completely. I, I remember my, the doctor saying to me, do you really want to be drinking and doing drugs? And I remember it confused me so much. I didn't really know what she meant. Do I want to be doing it? I have to be doing it. You know, this is my life. This is, this is, this is a kind of, it, almost in a way, isn't everyone doing this? <laughs> and, you know, I, I, I remember someone saying, you know, being an alcoholic or a drug addict and being sober is against my natural state. And I really, I really click with that. You know, my natural state of being as an alcoholic and drug addict is to drink and do drugs. If you want a different life, you've got to work for it. 
Mm. And that's what it is, you know, this staying clean is work every day, but it's the best thing you'll ever do. It is work and it's sitting with that shitty feeling, isn't mm. it, all the time. That slightly, that desire to like quench something in there. But knowing that actually the more you feel that anxiety, the more that you're actually doing well. Yeah, totally. And then being able to deal with those feelings mm. is really tough but really amazing and fulfilling it must sound really silly to a lot of people <laughs> it does i mean people who don't share the mindset it, it baffles them and that's why it's so important to talk to people in the fellowship or other people mm. or friends or family members who you know do share that ability to I don't know, relate to what you're going through yeah i mean it, but it's, it's, it's tricky that because yeah, you, well, you you only find it i mean in the rooms or with other people everyone wants to put wants to understand it and it's a really hard thing to understand i struggle to understand it mm. but it's you know people think uh, if if i've been drunk maybe i know what it's like to be an alcoholic if i've struggled with weight maybe i know what it's like to have an eating disorder mm. if i've been sad maybe i know what it's like to be depressed when actually the best thing you can do is fully understand you have no idea, but be there. This episode of Hurt to Healing is sponsored by our friends at The And Partnership. The And Partnership is a global communications business working with clients like Toyota, Mars, Coca-Cola and NatWest, as well as charities like the Princess Trust and RNIB. They believe that by bringing diverse talent together in partnership, they can transform the way that great brands are built. They call it the power of and. On the Hurt to Healing podcast, we know that having honest conversations about mental health can help us to see different points of view and to better understand ourselves. Just like the and partnership's belief in the power of and, we believe that by coming together to share our stories, we make ourselves and each other stronger. To find out more about the work the and partnership creates, visit theandpartnership.com. That's T-H-E-A-N-D partnership.com. And a massive thank you to the AND Partnership for supporting my mission and showing what we can achieve when we come together. So when you went off to the doctor and mm. he basically said to you, so was it a she? This one was a she, yeah. It was then a she, I got sent the off one, to the other one. Who okay, because yeah. the one who basically said to you, Ali, you're basically going to die unless you go and, yeah. and clean up. Mm. What was your emotion when you sat in that office? Was it a relief somewhat? Yeah. Again, because I, 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 I don't want to put myself that I understand what suicidal is like. I would not say that I was suicidal, but I didn't care. Mm. I just didn't care for my life. I don't think I would have taken it. But if someone had told me I had an incurable disease, I wouldn't have cared. And, and th they did. That's what it was. Mm. I didn't care if I was going, if I got told I was going to die the next day. And so with that, I was the most open I'd ever been to whatever she wanted to send me. And yeah, you know, she saved my life really. And did it, was there any fight back or was there any reluctance or was it just at that point you were so exhausted by it? It was just, yeah, take, do both, whatever. You know, I was so burnt out. And I didn't really have any fight left in me. But of course there was that bit of me thinking, no, 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 fuck this. Let's go to the pub. 
Yeah, it's that one last hurrah, isn't it? It's that classic. Once you've been told you're going to go to rehab, you're like, oh, well, I might as well have one last binge restriction, like whatever it is, like fix, because like, fuck it, I'm never going to do it again. Yeah. And then you slowly realize that actually until you've done the emotional work, of course, you're going to keep doing It's just not how it works. So the kind of mm. the it, process to get there can sometimes be even more painful those few days in between. Well, yeah, because you're, you're fighting everything, you know, my... A, a real bad quality that I have is anything that's good for me. I can't help but do it kicking and screaming. If if something gets tough, I don't want to sort it out. I want to detach from it. And that's why doing this work is so important. You know, when I got out of rehab, I had this moment of, I, I've got this, you know. Uh, I was sober for a couple of months, just kind of by default in rehab. If you're so for that time that you're sober, mm. you're sober by default. Really, your recovery starts when you get out. Mm. But I was so blown away that I had two months. I thought I've got this. Yeah, I, I didn't need the program. I didn't need any of that. I was I was a dry drunk, and it got nearly as painful as drinking. It then became just like drinking about existing, mm. as opposed to growing and getting a life worth living. Yeah, because you're white knuckling it for so long in you're a way. White knuckling it exactly, and you're just lost, you know. Mm. And you've got no without the rooms. They're the only people that understand you. They're the only people that aren't shocked by what you've done. You know, I love that saying of "We can only keep what we have by giving it away." That's really at the core of my recovery as well. I know, and that's why talking about it is so writing about it, talking about it is just so important. Yeah. It's like an exorcism. Again, yeah, exactly. And it's it, it dispels the shame once mm. again. It's sort of a cathartic release of, okay, fine. And actually, as you're sitting here now, I'm just thinking, it's amazing as an individual who, you know, has two parents who kind of are in the public eye. Mm. And yet, you're your own person completely. It's not a reflection on them. It's no reflection on you. But you're on this journey yourself. And it's sort of sometimes I think as when we identify ourselves as children and like there's that shame and parents talking about it and sort of, oh God, well, I've got a child. It is extraordinary how we are just so alone on our journeys and yet we're so, we don't have to be alone in a way. You know, we're the only ones who can heal ourselves, but we can also get so much from a community of people who are also healing. Totally, I completely agree. And yeah, it is actually amazing. Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd rather be an addict on this side of the wall than not an addict at all. Because it is amazing. Yeah, it's, it's remarkable. We've got, I've got this ro- these rooms that I can go to anywhere in the world. And not only does everyone understand me in those rooms, they're rooting for me. No one else has that. <laughs> it's actually amazing. It is. And you have a much deeper, more kind of spiritual connection with people as well. It's... um. And it's extraordinary how quickly you just penetrate all those layers and just go straight to like what really matters for someone. Mm. Yes. And I think one thing I remember saying to someone was that I just find things like drinks parties just fairly insufferable. They're quite good for recovery though. I mm. quite like going into those dinners and those parties and going, wow. And practicing. What a <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> it is something that I cared so much about what that person thought or you know, that you really would have got me down or whatever. I didn't fit in and I felt so ashamed about it for so long. But Mm. I'm like slightly, I'm kind of beyond that now. Mm -hmm. Do you you like going out at all now? 
I struggle definitely mm. and when it gets to a certain point in the evening when everyone else starts to sort of slur their words and get a bit delirious I'm just like oh my god this is Ouch. so boring I literally want to go at 11 and I'd rather get up early the following morning yeah. and, and, and live in the day and I get quite anxious at night because I'm kind of quite like oh god I want to like get to bed on this time I know that my sleep's a priority because if I don't sleep then I feel even worse and my anxiety goes up mm. and then I also find that people are just not really the best versions of themselves at, at those type of no, the horrific things. So when you went to rehab in Scotland, you wrote so beautifully about it, going up on the train, and there was you know you were so devastated that the buffet cart or something yeah, was it, it was closed. Hoping to have a few last fixes. Yeah, nothing. It was like it was like someone was playing a prank on me. But you arrived, and what was your first impression? Because you were presumably quite a lot younger than a lot of the people there. Uh, yeah, I mean, probably it's mixed. There were youngers and there were olders, but uh, it's hard to remember because it's like I didn't really feel much before I got sober. I I think there was a lot of pain, but I couldn't speak like I could now. You know, I didn't have a voice, and I'd got very good at pushing those feelings down. I think I felt, like I said, resentments, a lot of resentments. I didn't know who to blame, you know, I wanted to put this on someone. Like, why, how's it got to this? But, you know, I was also very, you know, ready. If there was an opportunity that presented itself for change, I was ready to take it. And thank God I did. Will you just detail for listeners, I think they find it quite interesting, what is the process when you go into rehab and, I mean, your body starts doing quite strange things, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah, you spend the first week in detox which is like a room in a terminal ward. You've got a very, you know, hospital bed, a little orange string above you to ring. I'd been <laughs> fiercely retied loads of times <laughs> from everyone ringing it so much. And uh, you're basically just coming off all the shit. You know, I had a lot of stuff I was coming off. And it's very clinical. So you don't really get to sleep much due to you coming off things, but also you need to be checked on every two hours. You know, your pulse needs to be taken. You need to check that you're still alive and you need your meds that save you from coming off everything. And apart from that, it's just a lot of sitting in the shower. <laughs> and shakes, shaking Lots a lot. Lots of shakes, yeah. And, really. Yeah, and did that slowly dissipate over time? Yeah, it goes and, you know, you... I mean, it took a while. It was the first week was horrific, but then, you know, you you get this clear head back. Back, I don't even know if I had it, and you know, you start to really question things like, was that normal? Me waking up and doing that every day, and it's kind of like you've been taken out of the matrix, mm. and that's the that's that was my first step really, just being by default given that first week of sobriety, mm. you can think now. What are you thinking? Yeah, no, and feeling that waking up and it's like there's there are suddenly options. Mm. It's yeah, although you're in a treatment center, it's it, you're not going down that rabbit hole. It's constantly thinking you're in this cage. Mm. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you're still in the cage mentally, but you know, physically in your actions, you can start to control it a bit more. Yeah, then when you get to that second part, exactly, it's a bit like being back at school. Yeah. Absolutely. And someone handed you your dad's book, which you'd never read before. Exactly. Yeah. What was that like? 
I I don't I don't even know how to explain it. It was incredibly surreal. Obviously, there have always been books lying around the house, and I I just I would never want to look at any of them, even his name, because I hadn't dealt with grieving him at all very well. I mean, it just gave my drug abuse and alcohol far more momentum. You know, suddenly I had a real reason to drink and do drugs. And I didn't want to deal with any of those emotions. I didn't I didn't want to see his face. I didn't want to see his name. And then it felt like a real, you know, higher power moment, as they would call it. That it just got plopped on my lap and there he was. So I began it. And what was it like, the process of, I mean, almost realizing that your dad had been through everything that you were going through? Mm, Mind-blowing. Because I really hadn't put those two together, which sounds quite silly. Because, you know, a lot of his life was about it too. And, you know, my thought process was, you know, yeah, he was an alcoholic, but not like me. You know, he wasn't doing the things that I was doing, taking the things I was taking. Um, He wasn't as broken as I am. And he was. Yeah, it's this illusion that he was this sort of civilized drunk and wasn't like falling out of pubs and falling asleep in them and yeah yeah exactly doing all the, the same pen. pubs yeah <laughs> it's mad that but it's a you know it's this thing of you see you only really get to see yeah um alcoholics and drug addicts on the other side mm. and it's it's almost quite dangerous that because you don't see all the people we lost along the way and coming out so now that you are you know you've been sober for how long now three years in july and how have you found life in sobriety yeah it's been amazing you know it's funny every kind of every six months that passes i look back on those six months and go fuck i was not well <laughs> yeah i can guarantee you six months from now i look back to this podcast and i think i was not well yeah it's so and true it, it's, it's mad that but it's amazing because it more than anything it shows growth yeah and that's what i think a lot of people lack and as you say like non-addicts and stuff it's that you really can chart the progress. It's extraordinary it because mad. there's so much you can latch onto to progress with. Mm. And it's this endless like minefield of, okay, what am I going to focus on next? What am I going to, what behavior or what mindset am I going to focus on for the next month? And then how am I going to manage relationships around that? And and then it sort of seeps into other behaviors as I'm sure you're probably finding. It's like, what am I latching onto that's becoming slightly addictive? That What am I obsessing over? Exactly. Well. Is it the rumination or is it like the smoking or is it the yeah. food or is it about shopping or, is it, you know, the codependency, like whatever it is. It's it's very quick to get its tentacles into anything. So it's and it's it's you you hear a lot in the rooms about it almost having your addiction having a mind of its own, and I I I really relate to that. You know, my addiction wants to get me by myself, and it's cunning, and it wants it wants me to fall, Mm. and it's 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 just mad getting your head around that. There's something inside me that wants me to fuck up, but there really is. And yeah, if I if I stop going to meetings, just even even for a week, my head starts to get cloudy. You know, I go into the shadows, and there's some, and I don't want to go back out. I don't want to share. So it's yeah, it's important to keep on top of that. And how is now? I mean, do you avoid? I know you're doing some private chef work, mm. but do you think being in kitchens is too much of a trigger now? Would you go back to? Well, that's kind of why I started doing yeah, yeah. private catering way more. Was I just thought I can't go back into there, but I have done since. 
just for short periods and yeah because i still crave it i love it even in sobriety in general what i crave more most about using is the chaos i wake up every now and again and i've got a nice life you know i've got a roof over my head i've got a job and i will still think this is shit yeah i want to get back <laughs> yeah you want to self-destruct because <laughs> that's what that your mind is how yeah, to do exactly you want to self-destruct mm. And still that thing inside you again, God, this is so boring. Yeah, it's the excitement that you yeah. seek, isn't it? It's that reckless, like living on the edge. Like Yeah, it is. Yeah, I, got, I try not to romanticize it too much, but you know. No, but it's true. You seek that living on the verge of death almost. Mm. And it's not healthy, but it's that internal saboteur that wants you to constantly be on that cusp of what's yeah, dangerous. Totally. That's exactly what it is. And it's being, I think, in, in sobriety or being clean, whatever, it's... It's learning to just slightly be okay with the boring yeah, and the mundane and yeah. realizing that the massive highs and the massive lows, they're just not worth it. Exactly. For, and it's being able to fast forward in your head. I think that comes again with like when you gain more momentum in, in sobriety, it's being able to say, actually, if I do this behavior, I know where it's going to end up. And it's actually the high, the momentary high is just not worth the, no. then the days of, of lows. It never is. But, you know, I suppose it's also that the simplicity of what using mm. was. There was only ever one issue when I was using, where now when you join real life, which is what it is, you're joining real life at whatever age you get sober. It's like, well, how, how, how are you meant to do what, what, taxes? What yeah, exactly. It's a mundane task. What is that about? <laughs> no, and, and Ali, last question. What yeah. advice would you give someone who's in the midst of, of a drinking issue or a drug, you know, dependency. Just be honest. Really say how you're feeling. Don't cover anything up. It doesn't matter. There's nothing embarrassing. There's nothing to feel ashamed about. Tell somebody. And the two things that are only ever really in my control is be honest and turn up. Those are the two things I can do that I try and have on autopilot the whole time. I don't always succeed at it. It's uh, they sound very simple, but they're they're hard to get by. You know, I was talking to someone else the other day about it's. For example, if I was to go to the, the corner shop and you asked me to get you a Twix, I go to the corner shop and I completely forget about it, and I come back and you go, "Where's my Twix?" I'll say something like, "Oh, they didn't have any," and that seems like quite a small thing, but actually, it's the root of something far bigger. I don't want to take accountability. In fact, I want to get on your side and go, those guys, they're the enemies. And it's about taking accountability. It's about laying everything out, being honest. I'm not doing okay. Tell somebody. There's always somebody who will help you. There's always somebody who will hold your hand and get you the help. And for someone who has a friend or a family member who they suspect is struggling with drugs or alcohol, what would you say is the best thing that they can do to support them? Yeah, it's about creating that environment. You know, don't get angry at it. Such an old school approach, isn't it? No drugs in the household. It's just like, whatever. People are doing drugs. People are drinking. And you might cut off that moment where they would feel comfortable to tell you, I need help. So create that environment of being just, you know, accepting and ready to help. But really, it's all about that honesty. Create that honest environment. Because otherwise, they'll just cover it up and it'll kill you. 
Ali. Note to end on. Yeah, exactly. You're <laughs> well. I think you're doing incredible work around exposing your struggles with alcohol and drugs, and you've written a couple of beautiful, beautiful articles. And um, thank you for being here today. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hurt to Healing podcast. I'd love for you to subscribe to the show or to follow me on our Hurt to Healing Instagram at Hurt to Healing Pod. You might also have a friend or family member that you think might benefit from hearing this conversation. So please spread the word. Mm-hmm.